I think it's interesting. I'm the only one who showed up wearing a branded t-shirt with a band I happen to like and a, a Lone Star <laughs> beard hat. Everybody else is wearing just stuff. Very nice. good no, stuff. We all dressed Thank up. You. But, I mean, we care. Yeah. Like, whatever. <laughs> Could we take off all your clothes as we start off episode number 164 of the Promo Upfront podcast? I'm one of your hosts, Bill Petrie. With me as always, let's go back to the beginning and call him the original good time player man, the one and only Kirby Hussman. Kirby, how the common skew are you? <laughs> I like the, the ad lib there. That was good. Uh, I'm doing really, really well. I, uh, you know, we had a, a lot of fun on the podcast with Bobby last uh, week or whenever that was. And so, I'm looking forward to today, buddy. How are you, Bill? Yeah, I am too. We've got two guests here, which I'm going to introduce in just a second. Uh, it is hot where I'm at in uh, Tennessee. <laughs> it is, uh, I went outside, broke out the Kelvin scale, and it's 790 degrees Kelvin outside with 8,000% <laughs> humidity. So not really fit for for uh, human life, but you know, it got me to thinking, Kirby, as things often do. I, I'd like to thank our sponsor today, and it's a the best part is a company we're all uh, all know, all love in Tervis. Now, I could wax poetic about their legendary drinkware, their diverse portfolio of products that are perfect for any occasion, or even their sustainability, the insane high quality. I mean, I could go on and on. What about their decoration? I really could go on and on, but we've got a podcast to get to, so I'm not going to. But they make every brand look amazing. Instead, I'd rather focus on something special that they're doing just for this crossover podcast. We don't do this very often. The good people at Tervis at the home office in North Venice, Florida, have authorized me. That's right. I have authorization. <laughs> They've authorized me to waive the setup fee on your next order if you, dear listener, do one simple act. Like and follow their pages on either Common Skew or LinkedIn between now and August 31st. They're going to waive that setup fee which is a great deal kirby don't you think that's a heck of a deal dude anytime that you can you know i like the idea that it waves the, the setup fee but then you can also use that as a gift to you know your client and so i think at any time that you can add value in that way i mean that's uh that's powerful so yeah very cool Kirby, there's a reason you've lasted 164 episodes on this podcast, and that's it. <laughs> Following them on social media, at Tervis Promo is where you're going to be the first to find new merchandise drops, product specialists, and even shareable content. So put this podcast on pause, if only for a moment, and follow them on both CommonSkew and LinkedIn. Uh, and of course, you can see all their legendary drinkware options at TervisPromos.com. Now, at the outset of this podcast, I mentioned we have two other guests. Let's introduce them. Let's call him the Baron of Branded Merchandise Connections, Mark Graham from Common Skew. Mark, how are you? I am great. I'm honored to have such a title. I I mean, that's incredible. I, I'm not a good time player, man, but I'll take that. <laughs> well, there's, there's only one good time player, man. But let's introduce the other, our, our quad co-host today, and Bobby Leehu. Let's call him the commander of Common Skew content. I'm not a, quite a Baron, but I'm glad to be here as commander. Thank you for having me. I, I looked in the rankings. Commander's actually above. Oh, <laughs> do you hear that? That's yeah. awesome. Is... I love it. All right. For this I, next 45 I, I minutes. For this next 45 <laughs> minutes, that's it. 
That's right. All right. So just to remind everybody to people who haven't listened to our podcast before, uh, Kirby and I bring topics to the podcast and neither one of us know what the other one is going to talk about. That way we hopefully get honest reactions and we, we uh, get that honest feedback and, and discussion. In the spirit of that, Mark and Bobby have no idea what I'm going to talk about. Neither does Kirby. And everybody has one topic today. Now, I have the upfront section of the podcast. That means I'm going to talk about something promo in. This is breaking news. So I, I am sure you guys actually know a little bit about this. So PPAI, Promotional Products Association International, has named their first ever director of sustainability and responsibility. Uh, Elizabeth Wimbush, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, Elizabeth Wimbush, formerly of Genumark, she's about to leave Genumark, but before that worked at Right Sleeve, and um, this role is part of PPAI's board, uh, the strategic plan for 2021, and I wanted to get everybody's reaction, and I have thoughts on my own, but is this something that's important? Is this something that the association should be doing? I don't know Elizabeth. I look forward to meeting her. I assume she's perfect for the job. So I don't, you know, I don't want to talk about that really. What do you guys think about the actual role? Does that something that PPAI needs to be doing and advancing? Let's start with Bobby Lee Hughes. I knew you were going to come to me first, Bill. <laughs> well, first Commander. of all, Go first of all, I have to have to put aside my pure love for Elizabeth and she's brilliant, intelligent, uh, she's just an amazing person. But here's what I love about what PPAI did with selecting Elizabeth. Elizabeth has experience already working and selecting a vendor pool, for example, as her previous supply chain role for one of the largest traders in the business. They could have gone outside of the industry to look for someone with say, sustainability chops. They could have gone anywhere. But what they did was they chose to stay within this industry with someone who has experience actually on the ground working with suppliers and vetting suppliers. So I thought, what a, what a brilliant move. This was news to me, by the way, Bill. I didn't know that move. I knew Elizabeth had announced her departure, but I had no where she was going to show up. And this is a fantastic role. So it's a very very positive move for by PPAI and a very positive move for the industry. Awesome. Mark Graham. So I know Liz very, very well. She is an absolute A plus player. And I think there are only two people that could have pulled off this job. Number one, Elizabeth Winbush. And number two, Denise Tashiro. And Denise Tashiro is on the board and she's spearheading this whole sustainability movement and doing it in a way that is authentic. It's uh, non-greenwashed. That's something that has a, been a big problem, I think, in our industry as we've tried to navigate sustainability and just done in a way that is on the ground floor, as Bobby, the commander, had just mentioned, that it's coming from the perspective of a distributor. It's not an outside policy person. It's not academic. This is someone that is living this, this business day in and day out. Um, Elizabeth is... Uh, uh, I, I commented on her LinkedIn post. She's a true badass. And I had the pleasure of not only hiring Liz to be our production manager at Right Sleeve, and then, but also just seeing how she grew and how she advanced her career and broadened it to become a lot more involved in supply chain and really taking an active look at sustainability and then also helping Genumark achieve their B Corp status. So this is someone who is legit. PPAI is extremely lucky that they landed her. And I think that there will be a fantastic dynamic partnership and the industry needs more of this. 
Yeah, what I think I'm finally learning after 53 years on this planet is that all good people and ideas come from Canada, whether it's, it's uh, <laughs> Anne Murray, whether it's Neil Sadaka, whether it's uh, Brian Adams, Getty Lee, I mean, and, and now Elizabeth Wimbush and obviously Denise Tash. Gord Downey, Bill, Gord Downey. Gord Downey, yes, absolutely. How dare I forget that. Kirby, how about you? So I don't know. You're Liz. not going to disagree, are you? Are yeah, you yeah, I, saying, I, this is a terrible idea. So I, so, but I want to go, I don't know Liz, so I can't speak to that. And I think that they did such a great job. Um, so, but I'll take a little bit of a different tact. I actually think it's really important. The role is really important from PPAI because ironically of a topic I was going to bring up, which is, I think one of the reasons it's important is we need to do a better job of explaining or defining what sustainability really means in the context of our industry. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that um, I was literally just having a conversation before we started this and it's like, you know, is sustainability that we donate a dollar back, but we still use cheap plastic from China? Is it that we, you know, like this piece of plastic is, is recycled. And so it's actually recycled plastic, but it's made in China. But does, so does that negate its value? Is it something like what does sustainability mean for our industry so that those of us who don't live in that world, like a Liz or a Denise, help guide me so that I can actually do this in a way that is authentic and real? Um, because I think as, as someone who's like, I want to do it right, but I don't live in that space. Having PPAI have someone in a leadership role that defines what that actually means so that we can actually as an industry do it right is what really is exciting to me. Yeah, I, I don't think I could add much to what the three of you have said, but that's not going to stop me. Um, I actually think it's a fantastic idea. And it's one of those things, you know, I have been critical of some of the things PPAI has done. And I think that's good and healthy. Um, and I think when you are critical of an organization, you also have to hand out kudos when it's necessary. And this is one of those times. As I read about this, I really, I, I don't know. Uh, Elizabeth, I really look forward to meeting her because I love the way she's approaching it. And she said that her focus is going to be on empowering people with education on what they can do both personally and professionally to make an impact. And I think that's what we all want. We all want to do the right things. I just don't know if we know what we're supposed to be doing. So great move by PPAI, great topic. But before we continue, hey, quick question. Who here loves a great self-promo? Does everybody love a good? I, I think everybody does. Who doesn't? I don't know one person on the planet that doesn't. Of course you all do. And we can thank the good strongs over at Kanata as they have a fantastic self-promo deal on almost every blanket they have. EQP less 30 on blankets decorated using embroidery or laser patch and EQP less 5% on sublimated blankets. Minimums, maximum setup of charges do apply, but this is a deal that's really not to be missed and a great opportunity to show your clients how impactful these products can be. So head over to kanatapromo.com for all the details before the offer ends on Halloween. All right, who wants to go next? Just go, whoever. I'll, I'll jump in since it's, since it's usually us and give, give our guests a chance to, to think a little bit. So this one might actually be a quick one. Uh, I saw this, um, I think, a couple days ago. This actually surprised me. Um, according to a recent report uh, from the CoreSight Research, malls are back. Um, you know, I think while we've seen a decrease in some retail sales from 20 to 21, I love Bill's already disagreeing, hasn't heard the numbers, doesn't know anything about it. He, he just thinks <laughs> I, have, I'm wrong. I, have, <laughs> I have all the information I need by your topic <laughs> sentence. Okay. So from 2021 to 2022, retail sales at malls have increased 11% to over 800 billion. 
foot traffic at mall, top tier malls, where the average shopper makes, uh, is increased 12% in 2022 compared to 2019. So for the group, A, do you buy it? And B, does it make sense that the, the, that kind of sales are, those kind of sales are back? I'll throw it to Mark first. I think it makes perfect sense. I mean, we're in a post-COVID era mm -hmm. where uh, online shopping went bananas and there's no question that online shopping will continue to, uh, sales will continue to improve and escalate. But this the whole desire of people getting out of their houses and experiencing uh, product, meeting up with friends at malls, uh, being able to go to uh, stores and be able to purchase and try on product and just consume in a different way, I think makes absolute sense. And I think what's really exciting is that this suggests that there is a tandem increase. There's increase in not only online commerce, but also this offline commerce, as opposed to it being this zero sum solution, or mm -hmm. sorry, yeah. zero sum situation where you've got, you know, online at the expense of the other. And I think it's exciting. I think it's important for society that people are getting out and that they're, that they're um, supporting this channel. Yeah. Bobby? Um, not much to add to this other than the one thing that happened pre-pandemic was there were, there was this sort of surge of boutique shopping, boutique shops in general. The D2C market when the pandemic hit started selling direct to consumer in far more, far more than they used to. They would go through proper channels, so to speak, before. So you saw this shuttering of lots of boutique shops pre-pandemic. So post-pandemic, it's possible that a part of that feeds into this, that there's that return back to the tactile experience of going shopping, but also that there's this dearth of your know, lack of, of boutique shops that are sort of getting back on their feet now again. So that whole landscape, and I just say this, so I have a friend who had a wonderful boutique shop and then had this experience, started selling direct and her, her competitors suddenly became, became the folks that were actually providing her goods before. So it was an interesting, um, difficult and tough time, but D2C has had this massive surge and I think we're ready to go back to Mark's point and shop again. Yeah, I think it's a hybrid. So I, I agree. We all want to get out. We want to have those tactile experiences. There are certain things I like to buy, I want to touch and feel. And, you know, a large shirt here is not a large shirt there. So I don't love buying clothes online and things like that. Um, but I do think it's more toward the specialty shops, not necessarily mom and pop shops, but a specific store in a specific location. The mall here, we we have a mall that has weathered the storm fairly well in Middle Tennessee, but I, I, I haven't been there in probably six years. I haven't needed to go there in six years. So I think that giant one size fits all, we have every shop you'd ever want and everything looks the same. I don't think we want that as a society anymore. At least I don't. I prefer the boutique stuff. And I think the malls are back. But I think they're being repurposed. I see them mm. being repurposed as recreation centers. That's true. I, I think that there's one, there's one, I cannot wait for this. When when Sandy and I go see Drew and Mitch at the Alabama-Mississippi State game in Starkville, they have a repurposed mall that's a, a hotel. I can't wait to stay in Things Remembered. I can't wait. Uh, it'll be, but I think, I think you'll see it repurposed. I just don't think a giant There's so many experience. jokes in there. There's, yeah. <laughs> Lots of room. I, I, yeah, insert, insert your own joke there. Yeah. So. Well, I, so I thought what, what I thought was interesting is even during the challenging time and it, what, it, and this is like a topic for another day, but it, we all experienced that, that pandemic differently. Like I was thinking about, you know, in Appalachia, Ohio, where I would talk to Mark and Mark's like, yeah, nobody's allowed to go anywhere. And I'm like, oh, we, we've 
been open for a long time. So we experienced that exit in different ways. And so even during that time, I thought the malls are in trouble that aren't experiential. And I know we throw that word experiential around a lot, but if there's if it's if it's just Auntie M's and I can get pretzels, then probably not. But if there's more to it than that, then I think it does make sense. So bring cool. back the music stores and I'll go back to the mall. What I can go flip the records. Now I'm interested. Yes. That's cool. Yes. All right, Bill, you're the conductor here. Who goes next? Uh let's go with Mark. Mark Mark has his hand raised being the polite <laughs> Canadian that he is. I think we should honor that. Mark, yeah. Well, what kind I, of topics I, so, do you so, have for us? So so this is the moment the Baron, you know, puts down the card and says, Sorry, Commander, step aside. So <laughs> right. Uh no, no, the only wow. the reason I was the, the reason I was enthusiastic about this is that I, I think Kirby's topic is is an interesting segue to my topic. And I and I feel that Kirby's observation is almost a little bit different than, than what I'm about to say. So okay. we've seen in some recent news reports, I'll credit ASI for this, that four imprint sales in the last quarter have surged. I think the amount is something they're up 23, 24%. Yeah. And, and, and that's interesting. But what's also interesting is that uh, uh, more agency, more strategically oriented, large suppliers like Bamco sales are down. And, I think that's interesting when you look at for imprint as a pure online platform versus a Bamco, which is a more traditionally uh, uh, go to market from a sales and strategic and creative standpoint. Yes, they do have online, but they're not really known for their online like for imprint. One's up, one's down in this post COVID era. Um, how do we make sense of that? Uh, Kirby, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I was going to say, since, since you uh, came at me, I would say I think that what's interesting to me about that is that a let's let's not BS. Four Imprint is incredibly good at what they do. They market better than just about anybody in the industry, and they do it nationwide. And I think that much of their business that I see, and this is me talking on the outside, so I could be full of it on this, but the way I observe it is it's transactional in nature, and transactional business is quicker. Right. And so it happens quicker and there's more of it, whereas a the more agency model has a longer sales cycle and they're bigger projects, which can really have a, a fluctuation of sales with one big project goes to the wayside. And then that could um, really affect a business like that. So I, I don't know if that's the, the case, but because for imprint does a great job at their marketing. I view them as a little bit more transactional. And I think that what is being done when. What I'm seeing out there, I guess, is is that people are like, yeah, I still need to promote, but maybe I'm not going to do the full-blown promotion, the full-blown campaign, but I do need pens for my trade show. And I think that that speaks to me as why those two things that don't make sense would make sense. Yeah. Bill, how about you? I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with Kirby and, and piggyback off that a little bit differently. What, what foreign print has done, especially with the marketing, they have raised the awareness of our industry. They've done every single distributor a favor. Now, I know a lot of distributors don't like foreign print. They feel like, oh, I compete against them. We'll stop competing against them. You know, they've become Amazon, at least from a promotional products perspective for people who don't really understand the industry. I want something quick. I want something for my family reunion. There's a place I keep seeing them on late night TV. I'll try that. Because, you know, I, if you're not in the industry, very few people know it even exists. We're doing much better about that, but that's historically the case. 
you don't try to compete against Amazon. So what you you need to do, you know, and so it doesn't surprise me that the agency sales are slightly down. I think Kirby's point is actually a good one, which I wouldn't have thought about, is the longer sales cycle. You know, that's why I made the comparison of foreign print Amazon. You 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 place an order, yeah, it's still gonna take a few days to it's not gonna be two days like Amazon, but it's going to be quick, it's going to be expedient, and it's going to be the experience you're purchasing, which is I just need stuff. I, I'm not putting a lot of thought into it, I just need stuff. What with the agencies and what distributors need to focus on is how do I differentiate myself so that I don't have that business? And I've told distributors time and time again, Kirby and I've talked about it on the podcast is when you're competing with four imprint, don't let them have that business. Don't worry about how, what kind of prices are getting. They're bigger. They're going to get better pricing than you. McDonald's gets better price for hamburger meat because they sell more hamburgers than you do. You know, get over it, figure out how you're different and make people want to spend money with you because of the experience, because of the thoughtfulness, because of the actual impact and, 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 and we can go for a million different things there. So um, I, it doesn't surprise me, but uh, it, it, I think if you're a distributor, it's kind of a little bit of a wake up call. Okay. I've, I've got to start really thinking differently before I'm phased out. It's possible that Bamco might not be the right paradigm for the industry and that for imprint could be a microcosm of the industry more so than we think. And here's what I'm wondering, and I don't know that I'm right about this, but here's what I wonder. Um, suppliers are sitting on a ton of inventory right now, mm -hmm. tons of inventory. That's one of their biggest challenges right now is they're sitting on a lot of inventory that ties up capital and things like that. With uh, Bamco, possibly you have massive import jobs in there. You have these massive orders that possibly saw tapering at, uh, last year. Maybe it started to come back. But what's interesting about Four Imprint is they their their marketing agree with everything you said. Their marketing and everything about it brings people to the front door. Their digital salesperson is their website, whereas a traditional even an agency distributor their web their salesperson is a quasi website and sales rep. So Four Imprint would be the first to tell you that they're actually consultative salespeople behind the scenes because their front door brings people in on the transaction side, just like any other distributor that gets a call for an order yeah. from a customer, for a brand new customer, and they say, hey, we need these jackets for this. Then the onus is on that traditional distributor to develop that relationship into a bigger client relationship. Whereas Foreign Print just has the front door right there on the digital side. So it's possible that for Imprint could be more of a paradigm for the industry as a whole and even though I, even though there are lots of reports about a suppression of sales this year for imprint could be an interesting model to look at and go, oh, you know what? They're not so much different than us. Yeah, I think you bring up an interesting point, Bobby, if I can jump in. I, I think you really do because they have done such an incredible job of what I talk about all the time. They've reduced friction. They've made it easy right. for people to get what they want. I always, you know, I tell my kids if they're like, well, I don't know if I want to go into sales. And I tell them it's the most noble profession you can have because you're mm -hmm. helping someone get what they want. That is a noble thing to do. And for imprint makes it so easy for people to do that. I think a lot of us in our own businesses, whether you're a distributor, service provider, or supplier, need to look at how do we make it easier, remove some of the friction and make things leaner faster. Yep. All right. Yeah, I, I guess I'm the, I think the, these are all really interesting observations and I, maybe I would just jump in with um, maybe two quick thoughts. I think number one, if you look at a BAMCO, they're, they're typically selling to fortune 500 companies, big marketing departments, and those marketing departments have seen their budgets decline and 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 those those budgets I think have impacted the creative strategic sale that a Bamco is is well known for. Whereas if you look at a four imprint, 
typically speaking, they're going after a micro business SMB segment and their budgets, if they were, let's say $2,500, I'm just making this up, but a, a low number in terms of their promotional product spend, I'm not sure that that the budgets there have been as impacted in, 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 in a downward way. So I think you end up with this with this, the the customer base of Four Imprint, their budgets have not been as affected as, say, the budgets of Fortune 500, and obviously we hope that that'll turn around. I think yeah. the second point that I was going to make is that we've seen across the industry, and certainly with CommonSkew and our shops product, but I think across the board with e-commerce ac across the industry, that it's ticking up, and distributors that are on the agency side that have an e-commerce presence are seeing that side of their business increase more than ever. So I think that's uh, that's encouraging. Yeah. It's a great point. Very good point. Okay. All right. So I go last and you're going to realize why you put me last. Uh, <laughs> and this may not ever get me invited back on the show again. Uh, but I'm going to ask for a lot of grace and kindness as I unpack this. Okay. So I'm going to ask for charity here. Uh, the power of merch is in its democratization, right? On social media, if I'm a Biden fan, I can take a selfie on my dark Brandon t-shirt and by doing so, it costs me $30 to show my support. I can take, instead of taking out a full page ad in the New York Times or run an advertising campaign, I can wear a t-shirt and simply express myself and make a very powerful statement, right? Okay. Now, I have a mental exercise for us. I showed up with a, a workshop. I want you to each close your eyes and here's the mental exercise. First, I want you to each imagine a person wearing each of these merch items, okay? First, imagine a NASCAR fan at a NASCAR race wearing a NASCAR t-shirt and a Jeff Gordon hat, okay? Now, I want you to imagine someone at a coffee shop who just walked in with a New Yorker tote bag. Now, imagine someone at the grocery store you bumped into wearing a notorious RBG t-shirt with the image of Ruth Bader Ginsburg on the front, and you turn around, and there's another person there with a Patagonia vest on. All right, fourth, I want you, or fifth, I want you to imagine a Trump supporter wearing a MAGA hat at a rally. And finally, I want you to imagine a Taylor Swift fan leaving the house in their new blue Swifty hoodie. All right, you can open your eyes. That ends the exercise part of the portion. Uh, all right, so we're on dangerous ground here because I'm gonna ask you to use your mind. I, I asked you to use your mind to visualize someone and our minds can't but imagine stereotypes and I hate stereotypes, but it's how our brains classify the world, right? Into categories, right. marketers would call them personas. Merch has achieved this like popularity I have never witnessed. It's, it's transcended the Rolling Stones era t-shirt, which was ubiquitous. It's now a part of how we express our unique and individual identity. An example is at Venue's merch report for 2022 showed that small and mid-cap concerts have the largest percentage of fans buying merch. So it's not just the Taylor Swift sales, mm -hmm. it's not the Rolling Stones shirt. Right. And besides, when you bought the Rolling Stones t-shirt, you might see someone wearing it and you think, yeah, I'm a Stones fan too. But now if you saw someone wearing a Jason Isbell t-shirt, or a Tyler Childers t-shirt, or a Jason Alding t-shirt, they might be expressing a cultural opinion. Tara Isabel Burton is an author who has a book called Self-Made. In an interview with Matt in Matt Klein's Zine magazine, she does a great job of decoding our cultural state when it comes to self-expression. She called these social signifiers. So here's a quote. Increasingly, brands have become social signifiers, ways for us to convey our class tastes, moral sentiments, and political opinions in an easily legible way via a New Yorker tote bag or say a Chick-fil-A hat, still quoting her. I think the idea that brands have moral and spiritual import rather than merely sex or wealth related signifying potential is new and to me troubling. Here's my question. Do you think merch has reached a point in time and culture where merch providers should carefully consider the moral and spiritual impact of the merch they create for clients? In other words, as a distributor, 
Would you take a company's brand guidelines that navigate colors and fonts and logos? Do we now have a new category of this moral and spiritual imperative? And if so, is this healthy for our industry or does this darken what would otherwise be a light and fun category? Easy question. Who wants to go first? Yeah. <laughs> I'll go. Um, just because I guess I'm dealing with this on a regular basis. Uh, no, no, I don't think I have a moral obligation. Um, I think that I have, I think that the best distributors have a business ob obligation. I think that it's important to me as a marketing advisor to um, advise folks on the impact that different decisions that they make could have. But I don't think, I think that there are, I, I, I think back to years ago when, and this is, you know, because we've been doing this, many of us have been doing this a long time where somebody wanted to put a curse word on a t-shirt and that was like a big deal. Nobody would, I couldn't get a printer to print it. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, dude, it's going to be handed out at a family reunion. It's going to be fine. But it was funny to me because that was like the precursor to this. Well, am I allowed to say shit on a t-shirt? Obviously this has bigger implications, but I'd also say that no, I don't think it's my job. And I think to be the morality police. And so, uh, but I will say it's fascinating that we're in a spot where this actually might even be a discussion because <laughs> that's not been, uh, right. not been something that I think we had that impact for a long time. Right. So I want to push back on what Bobby said in the beginning, that this is something, a new cultural phenomenon. I completely disagree. The seventh grade Billy Petrie was very concerned about making sure he had an alligator on his shirt because that meant I belonged to the tribe I wanted to belong to in seventh grade. Uh, I, you know, I want to make sure to have Nike Adidas shoes that had three stripes and not the ones from Kinney shoes that had four stripes, as <laughs> my mom would always make me get. So I think this is something... It's relatively new, I think, from a, a long-term perspective, but I think it's something that people of our age, we're all in our, our early 30s. I think it's something we've been dealing with for uh, a number of years. Do, as far as the moral obligation, I, I, I actually side with Kirby. I think it's whatever you want to do, it's your business. I'm a big believer in freedoms like that. So if something, if I'm a distributor and I'm giving artwork that offends me, offends my sensibilities then I, I should have that right to say, I'm not interested. You need to go somewhere else. Mm. But I don't think I need to be judged if I decide to print it and make sure I provide for my family and my employees. Marcus? Yeah, I, th I Bobby, I, I love your mic drop question. Um, <laughs> and it was not, not an easy one, uh, but I, I think really important. So I think two things. For, first, uh, I, I think that we all know and your examples are so fabulous and just underscoring how tribal merch yeah. can be and just how important our medium is. I mean, we just talked about talked about the power of merch through four imprint and Bamco, for instance. But I think this is like you're you're seeing it on the ground level in terms of what a mm -hmm. t-shirt can do or yeah. a New Yorker tote bag can do or a Taylor Swift hoodie can do to create community. Um, political merchandise we've talked about for some time, regardless of what side, uh, what side of the political political spectrum you are on. It's tribal. Um, as to whether there's an obligation, and maybe, maybe I don't know if I misunderstood the question. And I think back of my, my perspective at Right Sleeve when I was a distributor, it, we all pick and choose our clients. At the end of the day, mm -hmm. um, we at Right Sleeve had a very particular uh, brand. We attracted certain kinds of clients. It was very tribal in terms of the community that we built with the types of clients. And we had an opinion about the kinds of merchandise that we were producing for our clients and the intended effects. And it, 
we would pick and choose our clients. And if there was someone that wasn't aligned with our values for whatever, whether we were right or wrong, we would choose to either accept the project or not. And, and so I feel like that's maybe a variation of what Bill and Kirby are saying. Um, and the reason for that is it allowed us to build our reputation in a particular area and that, and that bolstered our brand as opposed to taking everything that came across the table. Um, so I, I, I think there's a bit of a responsibility for, I suppose, the distributor to be true to who they are in terms of how it is they pick and choose their clients and the kind of reputation and brand they're looking to build. Yeah. I, I sort of also, I'm glad we started with Elizabeth Winbush because, you know, Elizabeth is a very conscientious supply chain person and, and passionate about sustainability. And we're seeing almost this movement with agencies. There's a group called Clean Creatives. They're a movement of advertisers, PR professionals, and, and who are cutting the ties with fossil fuel clients. And they pledge over 600 agencies that have pledged to not work with fossil fuel clients. Now, I live in a city, uh, Calgary is a city, Houston's a city where a lot of oil and gas clients are. So our demographic is made up of those type of clients. But what's interesting to me is this sort of this moral and spiritual import that's become becoming possibly something for us to keep an eye on. And I do agree with all of you. I think most distributors are conscientious about who they work with anyways. Yeah, uh, I think the best of them, I should say, are really conscious about who they work with anyways, and they work with those that align with their passions and values. I think it's interesting. I'm the only one who showed up wearing a branded t-shirt with a band I happen to like and a, a Lone Star <laughs> beard hat. Everybody else is wearing just stuff. Very, very good yeah, stuff. We all dressed Thank up. You. But, I mean, we care. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. It's fine. But, Kirby, <laughs> but here, here's what I would know. say about, about, about Bobby's thing here. And, and when I was Closing my eyes, I almost fell asleep there, Bobby. Thank you, because it was lonely to sleep with your with, with your calm voice. Yeah, it, yeah, thanks. Is, is, is that I pictured, I'm sure just like each and every one of you, pictured a different person, a different demographic mm -hmm. with the tote bag, the t-shirt, mm -hmm. the hat, right? And each of those demographics are using the merchandise in, in, a, in a way that we hope it's used for, right? They're wearing it, they're using it, they're telegraphing their their views and values onto the world and it's creating emotional connection. So whether mm -hmm. you agree with it or you yeah. don't agree with it, yeah. our medium, this t-shirt, that tote bag means so much and that's incredible, incredible, incredible to be in this industry because of that. Yeah. yeah. And today is Promotional Products Work Day as we record this. What better testament? And Bobby, thank you for raising the intellectual bar of this podcast. Uh, <laughs> it's above, annoying. Uh, above <laughs> slack-jawed yokel status. Uh, so we really appreciate that. All right. So I said we'd finish with something fun. Loved all the conversations. Loved all the topics. So I've been doing something recently with Kirby called Top 3, Bottom 3. Uh, Kirby knows I'm opinionated and I just rank certain things the top three of something and the bottom three of something. And I just want your reactions, your thoughts. So today we're going to rank the top three and bottom three instruments in a rock or pop or country band. The top three, bottom <laughs> three instruments. Now let's start with the top three. The number three best instrument to play in any band, the drums. Who hasn't done a little air drumming once in a while? Anybody disagree with that ranking? No, that feels right to me. Okay. It's not number one, but yeah, I'll buy that. It's in the no, three. no. Number two, the bass. Whether you're Getty Lee from Rush, whether you're Paul McCartney, whether you're uh, my favorite bass player of all time, which is John Taylor of Duran Duran. Shh, don't tell anybody that. Uh, the bass can be extraordinarily cool. A lot of people forget about the bass. So no, bass is my number two instrument. Anyone? Yeah, I think that's absurd. Fight that's me way, way too high. 
really? What would you put there then? <laughs> I, there's, there is no, there's no time that you're like, oh, hey, I want to date somebody from a band. I want to date the bass player. Give me a break. <laughs> but um, the bass and the drummer, not seen... they're in simpatico, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> the drummer's the crazy. <laughs> the bass, the, absolutely not. So you're telling the world you wouldn't date Paul McCartney. Very interesting. Okay, yeah. Kirby. <laughs> um, the number one, it's the guitar. It has to be the guitar, right? Yeah. Who who hasn't picked up a tennis racket, played a little air guitar? It's got to be the guitar. So that's why I wanted to do top three first. They're not as controversial unless you're you're Kirby. The bottom three, <laughs> though. This is where we're going to struggle, folks. All right. Yes. The, the, the third worst instrument anyone plays in any band is the flute. It's the whole reason I never got into Jethro Tull. It makes no sense. It adds very little to it. Uh, I, I, I just, I, you know, I just can't do it. I mean, yeah, it's wedged into who can it be now by men at work, but it's, it's a terrible instrument for a rock pop or country band. Does anyone disagree with this? I, I'm going to disagree. Hey. I'm going to disagree because if, if you have not seen Warren Ellis play the flute in a Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds song, or just any any concert, you'll be blown away. Okay. For the most part, I, I think you're right. You get, some, you get some absolute maniacs like that, and Warren Ellis reinvents okay. it. Well, Same I, with the I, violin. Okay. I can buy, I can buy think, that it's the exception that proves the rule. <laughs> All right. True. Number two, and I have a feeling this is going to cause a little disagreement here, the saxophone. I know a lot of people love the saxophone and it works in certain songs, like certain Pink Floyd songs. It works very, very well, but it, it's terrible and urgent from foreigner. It's again, wedged into who can it be now by men at work. That's two bad instruments in one song that completely <laughs> nullifies the band from rock history. To me, it's, it's this, it, the saxophone is just one of those instruments. I was feel like I should be listening to Chuck Berry or little Richard. That's where it belongs. It should stay back in the fifties. No more saxophone. Actually, I, I dig a saxophone every now and again. Wrong! <laughs> saxophone is a bad instrument, Kirby. Yeah. Bill, I will say that I agree with you that who can it be now? The saxophone there is is dripping with 80s cheesiness and, and needs to be removed. <laughs> needs to be removed from the music catalogs of the world. So I agree with you. I, I agree. All right. The number one, the, the worst instrument in any band, and I'll be shocked if anybody disagrees, has to be the keytar. <laughs> no one looks cool playing the guitar. Either play the keyboards or play the guitar. Or you can do what Eddie Van Halen did during the 1984 tour. He'd hold his guitar, he'd strap it around, he'd play the keyboards, and then walk away, play a guitar solo, and then come back. Y you can't do both. It's not cool. The guitar yeah, is terrible. I, so one of the things I would say, Bill, is I love that you care deeply about shit that nobody cares about. <laughs> Well, if you go to my brand new website, I hate keytars.gov backsplash. Now backsplash. Backsplash, backslash. I'm an I'm an internet wizard, Kirby. Um yeah, no, the keytar's terrible. I've never seen somebody look cool playing the keytar. I don't argue with that. Well, I mean, Bobby, when you were in the high school band, you played the keytar, didn't you? No, I actually played saxophone, which is worse to admit right now. <laughs> wow. 
now now i yeah. feel really bad yeah, yeah, now i yeah. feel really bad i will say i will is going to say this earlier but there, there is and this is dated but there's dave matthews uh saxophone player is phenomenal and yeah. i think he does a different thing in music yes. than a lot of people do so it's almost like he brings in this funk fusion aspect to rock but i agree with you bill it's got a dated uh aspect to it it works in some songs. Like I said, I think of Us and Them by Pink Floyd, which I think is a beautiful song right. and it works very well in there. And I know both Roger Waters and David Gilmore. Oh, yeah, yeah, the big man, Clarence Clemens. I just, I don't know. When I think of a saxophone player in pop music, I think of the weird muscle muscle guy in uh, Lost Boys who really rocked the <laughs> saxophone. And so that's what I picture everybody playing the saxophone looking like. They say, this is my moment. It's kind of like the triangle player. Cowbell. Uh, uh, or cowbell, I'm sorry, the cowbell player. Yeah, Kenny G. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's like, yeah. this is my moment, man. But I'll tell you how you can have your own moment. That's right. You can head over to either Comments Q, and that's what we'd prefer you to do. Head over to Comments Q, maybe LinkedIn, but follow our friends, Tervis, and you're going to get a waived setup charge if you do that before the end of August. Uh, great drinkware, legendary quality, fabulous decorating options. And it's a really, really great product that one of those things, it's, it, it really helps your brand become part of another iconic brand. So head over to uh, servicepromos.com. You won't be sorry you did. Gentlemen and Kirby, I want to thank you all for being part of this fabulous podcast today. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, my friends. Thanks so much, guys.